A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. This chapter of Captured is Part 2 of our deep dive into the rarely told, incredible story of the League of Wives, a group of women who banded together to make a crucial impact on the eventual rescue of many of their husbands, fathers, and sons. In part one, we set the scene for the League's formation with help from expert historian and author Heath Hartage Lee, Andrea Rander, wife of POW Chief Warrant Officer Donald Rander, and Pat and Missy Mearns, the wife and daughter of Lieutenant Colonel Art Mearns. Now we'll explore how they banded together under strong leadership and were able to accomplish so much in Washington, D.C. and beyond. I always say they're the SEAL Team Six in Pearls. That again is League of Wives expert and author Heath Hartage Lee. An amazing, epic gem of a story that nobody really knew about, about these POW and MIA wives and what they had gone through to get their husbands home. They would not support the Paris Peace Agreements ending the war unless that clause was in there saying the POWs will be returned and the MIAs will be accounted for as best possible. The lights burned all night in the White House as President Johnson conferred with his advisors and he went before the nation to report on the crisis. Aggression by terror against the peaceful villagers of South Vietnam has now been joined by open aggression on the high seas against the United States of America. At this time, there were only about 23,000 troops deployed in South Vietnam. Johnson had not yet activated any ground forces, so these were all Air Force or Navy. In an earlier episode, we covered the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the operation in which Commander Everett Alvarez was shot down and captured. Swift and sure has been U.S. retaliation for communist PT boat attacks on the high seas. This is the Maddox, one of the two destroyers that were attacked while patrolling international waters in the Gulf of Tonkin near North Vietnam. Warplanes from two carriers, the Ticonderoga and the Constellation, avenged the unwarranted red assault with 64 sorties to North Vietnam PT bases. 25 boats, more than half the fleet, were destroyed. And North Vietnam oil reserves badly depleted. It is estimated 10% went up in flames after direct hits. The Pentagon said two pilots were lost. One was reported to be a prisoner of the Reds. That prisoner, of course, was Everett who had just been shot down on August 4, 1964. Also flying in that operation was highly respected and renowned Navy Admiral Jim Stockdale. Jim did come home from that mission. To contrast Everett's experience after the Gulf of Tonkin with Jim's, let's take a look at what happened at the Stockdale residence after Jim came home safely. That Stockdale party, I mean, it was wild. They were wearing like a beetle wig was passed around. Sybil was dancing barefoot. Sybil Stockdale was Jim's wife, mother to his four boys. They would go on to spend 58 years together. They had a surf band come in and play at their house. Like it was like an old time Top Gun kind of party. Like it was epic cinematic. There's a photo of this famous party complete with the Beatles wig, on our website, CapturedPodcast.com. As jovial and raucous as this looked, the good times, even for the Stockdales, wouldn't last long. Very quickly, all these communities are devastated, all the ones that have anyone who's in the air war, the pilots. Commander Alvarez is shot down, and they don't even know for a while, you know, what's going on. Again, it was all this keep quiet stuff. They're sent on very dangerous bombing missions, basically their hands tied behind their back. So they get picked off very quickly and in fairly large numbers. And they're considered air pirates by the North Vietnamese. Remember, there was no official declaration of war, so the North Vietnamese viewed the American bombers as illegal combatants, air pirates. 
When we last left Pat Mearns, a young mother to two girls, all she knew about her husband Art's status was that he had been seen ejecting from his aircraft in a parachute. Information trickled in slowly but surely, as some families received the news that their men were confirmed POWs, confirmed to still be alive. For Pat and her daughters Missy and Francis, they were suffering from and enduring a different kind of grief. Are you looking for art? Are you trying to spot him, trying to find him, that sort of thing? At that particular time, 57 years ago, I, I watched everything that on the news. There was a television program, animation thing, that they said, they said, pow, bang. So you're too young for that. But anyway, <laughs> every time I'd hear that on television, I, I would stop everything and, and watch and listen to what was going on. Over on the East Coast, Andrea Rander had received confirmation that her husband, Don, had been captured and imprisoned in North Vietnam. In the midst of all this heartbreak and loneliness, Andrea would have a surprising encounter with one of the most powerful American politicians of the time. One time when Nixon was campaigning, he actually came to Baltimore and I thought, if he's campaigning, I'm going to see what I can do. He passed through, through the neighborhood, and he was, you know, in his secured car, but he was standing up at the time. And I yelled at him, what about the POWs? My husband is a POW. Nixon, bring the guys home. So I don't know if that <laughs> got instilled in his mind or not, but I think he heard me. When a nation with the greatest tradition of respect for the rule of law is torn apart by unprecedented lawlessness, when a nation that is supposed to be the symbol of opportunity for the whole world to see is torn by racial strife, then it's time for new leadership and a new president, and that's what we're going to do in 1968. There was a lot of back and forth about, I founded the league. No, I founded the league, or this person did, or this person did. No, definitively, I know, because I spent so many years on this. Sybil Stockdale is the one and only founder of the National League of Families. She was a trailblazer. Sybil Stockdale, trailblazer. The senior wife in Coronado, because her husband, Jim Stockdale, is the highest ranking Navy officer in Coronado. And when he goes missing, she by default, and everybody knows and falls in line, she is in charge of the POW and MIA wives on the home front in the Coronado, San Diego area. But at first, this hierarchy is, is really a problem. The junior wives are really kind of afraid of the senior wives. They know their place, but they're afraid to speak out. They're a little afraid to contribute their efforts. And then they get over that and are all able to work together quite well because everybody kind of knew their place and what to do, but they worked as a team together. Sybil Stockdale, she found something called the San Diego League of Wives, founded in 67. And it, this all starts around her dining room table. I was sitting in L.A., with my, my two daughters, and uh, uh, we didn't know what was going on. I've heard that Sybil Stockdale was down in San Diego, and uh, I should get to talk to her, which I did as soon as I found out and talked to her on the phone and, and made an arrangement. And I came down to, to San Diego and met Sybil, and we talked. We spent an afternoon at, at lunch uh, talking about what was going on, why we weren't hearing, and we chatted about uh, the other ladies that were interested, who were in the same agonizing position that we were in, uh, especially the missing people. I told Sybil what I had in mind, and mine was to go to Washington and talk to my elected representatives, because I knew somewhere in the United States there were other people that felt like I did. And we needed to let the elected politicians know how we felt. 
especially how I felt. They kind of dub themselves, you know, get stationary, they get a checking account, and it's all, it's not only POW wives, it's also MIA wives from that area that start this. Just like their imprisoned men, the wives maintain their hierarchy based on the husband's military rank. So there is a whole status thing with senior wives and junior wives. And like, you know, the young 20-somethings are going to follow the lead in this era of the 40-something wife like Sybil, Jane Denton, and some of the others. They lead the way, and the younger ones, you know, fall in line. Sybil Stockdale was our leader. When I met her, I knew immediately that I could be under her control. I had a lot of confidence in her, and she really was like a mom to me, I, and I think to the other women as well. She's the person that's going to be in charge of us, and if we have any questions, or if we're feeling ill, if we're tired, bring it all right there. Put it in Sybil's lap, because she cares, she knows what she's doing, she's been through a lot already. All credit goes to Sybil Stockdale for being the one. She is the one who goes to the press. That's really how the League of Wives starts in Coronado. So in 68 in October, she goes to the San Diego Union newspaper and and tells that story without being specific about the torture, but just says the North Vietnamese are violating the Geneva Conventions of War and the world should know. The press became involved and I thought, this is the way to go, is to get people in- involved. And uh, the press were interested in, in us and use of our rights as, as in the United States. The press is very, very important. And this opens the floodgates for women all across the country to start to tell their stories, to go public and not keep quiet anymore. So I think that's really the dividing line of when this really starts to get real. The good times are over and it's now it's time to get serious. The Virginia Beach group, kind of the big East Coast group, they kind of end up merging with the West Coast group. And then their Air Force wives in Colorado and Army wives from all over the country, Kansas particularly, And they all eventually come together under Sybil Stockdale, under the umbrella of the National League of Families, which is incorporated in Washington in June of 1970. It's such a great grassroots political lesson. All the branches and junior and senior wives, everything kind of melds together and they work for this common goal of getting the men out and accounting for the missing. They all become one big, huge national lobbying organization that is very powerful. The League was founded primarily for women in similar situations to connect and commiserate with each other. But quickly, the women would realize their power. The League of Wives would grow into an organization that successfully influenced the president to bring the POW crisis to the forefront. When the women started to realize their husbands were in captivity and where exactly they were, they began, of course, to write letters. As we've covered, some of these letters would make it, some wouldn't. Sometimes they would get replies after months, and sometimes never. But for the couples who could keep in regular contact, their innocent letter writing would soon take on a much more important role to the American government. I call them the Jane Bonds. Some of them are basically working as um, intelligence gatherers for their government by coding these secret letters to their husbands. They're not spies, but they are intelligence gathering experts. Many of them are sort of hand-picked. Sybil Stockdale, Jane Denton. It was not until long after the war that some of them finally admitted they had been coding these secret letters to their husbands. They were so worried their husbands would be executed if anyone found out what they were doing. 
the letters would be sometimes simple things like a double speak, like they would just say things that were kind of bizarre so that the husbands would know, gosh, that that's really strange. What are they talking about? One thing that Sybil and Jim did where she said some things that made him realize he needed to soak a photograph that she sent and then secret writing came up. The primary thing was intelligence gathering about who was there and who was missing. Who were the other prisoners? Did you know of anyone who was missing? Do you have any information about that situation? And in some cases, where the location of different camps. Then, of course, the other major intel gathering was about the torture. They needed to know the treatment. Are you getting medical treatment? Are you being tortured? Are they following the Geneva Conventions of War? Which they totally were not. That was one of the big things they found out very early on when Sybil gets this letter from Jim that's coded to her and says, in leg irons, 24 hours a day, being tortured all the time. No medical care, no mail, like, or very, he did get that piece of mail, but very little mail. Later, they would send packages with little microphones embedded in the toothpaste. And then there was like a letter and numbering system that you had to learn. Why, you may be wondering, Well, the U.S. couldn't communicate with the servicemen. They couldn't get this intel, and the North Vietnamese weren't providing it. If they had been following the Geneva Conventions, they would have had to inform the U.S. who exactly was captured, who was missing, and who was killed. But of course, they weren't following the Geneva Conventions. So how could the U.S. get this information? They turned to the only people who could communicate with the POWs without raising North Vietnamese eyebrows our Jane Bonds. All these women who did it would spend days just trying to figure out how to code things correctly. All kinds of methods that they used to get information across to their husbands. Somehow, the North Vietnamese just never figured this out. And it really is a mystery because some of this stuff was fairly obvious and they just did did not get it. A year into her husband's captivity, Andrea received a surprising phone call, one that would literally take her and fellow wives to new heights. In 1969, I get a call at the office, and I'm being asked, would I like to go to Paris? And that was the question. And I thought, why is someone, while I'm waiting this whole year for my husband calling me and asking me would I like to go to Paris. It was described to me that wives whose husbands were missing or in captivity in Vietnam were trying to make a trip to Paris and they are nominating me to go on this trip. I wasn't about, you know, having vacations in Paris. So, of course, what was I going to do? Yes, if this is an opportunity to find more information about my husband and other husbands, I jumped on the opportunity, yes. I had to make all the arrangements. I barred suitcases from friends at at the office because I really hadn't traveled that much yet. In the meantime, I was getting more information from wives that I had known nothing about. It started to flow. I got more calls. And the next thing I knew, I was on a whirlwind train ride to New York to get to Kennedy Airport and leave from there. I met the wives at the airport, whom I had never spoken to or seen before, and That was the beginning of the rest of my life. Gentlemen, for the flight deck, we're number one for departure. Flight attendants, please prepare the cabin. Be seated. So now I'm on this flight, this wonderful flight, meeting all these wonderful women. We gelled really nicely and and hearing these stories and thinking, I'm not the only one who's going through this. There are a few people wiping tears away from their faces and I'm like stymied. Well, 
should I cry? What should I do? I've already done some crying in private, but I don't know if should I react in public and cry in front of people? But you know, being with this group of women, I will never, how can you forget? They were just so comforting. Can you also talk uh, just a minute about being African-American in the League of Wives? Were you treated any differently? Did you feel any differently? What was that like? I felt no difference at all. I, I really and truly mean it. I never even thought about it, not even with rank. Um, it just, it never occurred to me. There was something that had me fit in to being with all of the women that I was uh, learning and, and, and meeting, and I felt this is where I should just be. Being a leader and all of the women who were involved in this, we all had the same cause. We wanted our men to be able to be released. Our goal is right now, if the U.S. government cannot bring our men home, then we have to find a way to get them home. We're in it together. There is a mission here. There is something that we are all in together. The civil rights and the POW with me did not clash. Even though I watched all of this on television, it was not an equal balance. I did not spend more time watching the civil rights that was going on because I was more engrossed in, in finding out about my husband and all the other husbands who were missing in action or in captivity. So it really was a little different for me as an African-American woman um, during that, that space of time. There's something about this mission is not just unique, it's important. It can be perilous, but there, there's some bonding that's going to go on here, and we have to get serious about this. And even though we had our light moments, I knew that I was in a, a very serious position, and I was going to have to accomplish something that was going to be really unique and different. And I thought, you know, this is really more than I ever anticipated as a military wife. We get to Paris. We have gotten to know each other a little bit better, flying in and talking and planning. And then we get to our hotel and we meet with Sybil Stockdale in her, off, in her room, <laughs> came to be known as an office, and we strategized a lot. It was not an easy trip to meet with the delegation because we weren't sure what was going to happen. It was really the fear of the unknown. We went through a lot of ifs and buts and no's and trying to use a translator and, and, and trying to make ourselves comfortable. But Sybil had planned this so well. She even had me write a letter so that I could present it to the Vietnamese delegation. She says, be sure you write everything clearly about your husband, why he went to Vietnam, talk about your children, describe him as a husband and father, and describe his looks, and make sure that you indicate his facial qualities and what he looks like. And I think this was to ensure that they knew that he was African-American and they were holding an African-American and there were other African-Americans that were being held. Sybil organized the wives so that we could make an impact and let the Vietnamese delegation and Vietnam know, because I'm sure they got the information that wives were out there struggling to find out any news they could about their husbands. And who were these women? Uh, military wives on the loose, so to speak? going to Paris. The women arrived in Paris September 1969. Five days later, they were finally granted an audience at the North Vietnamese embassy. Sybil Stockdale remembers being so nervous that she went to the bathroom to dry heave three times before the meeting began. But when she finally entered the embassy, she felt a sense of calm. She was wearing a bright pink wool suit 
bought in 1965 for her husband's last change of command ceremony. She thought it might bring her luck. Sybil matched wits with Zhuan An, the head of the North Vietnamese delegation. He told her, we know all about you, Mrs. Stockdale. We know you are the organizer. She remembers thinking, well, at least they don't know any more than that. At the meeting, each wife demanded information about their POW or MIA family members, and they delivered hundreds of letters of inquiries from other women. The goal, of course, the goal was there. We had to find out, and we thought we'd take it to the enemy, so to speak, and they were. If we couldn't get what we needed from our own government, there was another way to approach this. Let's get these guys home. So our meeting ended there, and we felt almost like we accomplished something, but we didn't feel that we accomplished much. The fact that we were there, the fact that we brought all these letters, we had tons of letters that we had collected from individual families in the areas where we we delivered them because we were hopeful that these letters would get to the to the, the men in captivity. We start we came back to the hotel and we waited to see if, if there would be any results, any any further information about our husbands and there was nothing. Even though the tenor of the meeting was friendly, as the wives and the North Vietnamese delegates shared tea and crackers, even exchanging American cigarettes for Vietnamese cigarettes, the delegation provided no information of substance or any real promise to help. What the meeting did do, though, was thrust the POW-MIA issue into the spotlight. Since they did nothing, the worldwide media portrayed the Vietnamese as heartless and cruel, exactly the opposite of the image they wished to show to the world. It's a lot of stopping and starting, and it's not our government so much as the North Vietnamese who are so difficult, and they're negotiating, they're just stalling out to get what they want. So that, that does hold things up. It takes quite a while to get it resolved. Quite a while was one thing for the wives who at least could grasp the gravity and the uncertainty of the situation. The children, on the other hand, these men's daughters and sons, were another story. My youngest one was just a baby when um, Dawn left, and she barely remembered her dad. Um, and then Lisa was a couple of years older, and I was only able to tell them because they knew that dad was gone, but it was hard to describe that it was a war. I said, well, you know, we're in the military now, and dad could go different places, and we may not be uh, able to go with him. And so... He's not going to be with us, and I try to describe to the children, especially as they get a little older during that space of five years plus, that this is the way it's going to be, and we're just going to have to live with it until other things change, and, we're, and we make the changes. It was a really heart-rending time. That's Missy Shaw, formerly Missy Mearns. Pat's oldest daughter. I, I remember being hopeful that my dad would come home all the time. They seemed to know, actually from the very beginning, they, they, they knew because they were military kids and, and they must have had some way of, they were so young, so young, but they, they seemed to, to understand in, in ways that I don't even understand how they did. They were very confident that their daddy was gonna come home. Art was very close to his girls, and they were very special to him. So they had, they had something going between them. <laughs> they were always very special. I don't know if this is true for fam military families now, but we kind of were divorced from the military after my dad was shot down. So we missed everybody. You know, we missed being on base and being part of the military. My mom has told stories since then that a lot of my dad's friends had a hard time 
talking to her and to us because it hurt so much for them to know that their friend was gone and that as combat pilots, that was hard for them. Missy and her sister Frances would become poster children of the POW crisis, literally. The Pentagon commissioned a portrait of the two of them. It depicts the girls sitting on the ground with an impoverished looking prisoner in the background. Francis is writing a letter to God. It says, my name is Francis. My daddy is a pilot prisoner in Hanoi. We miss him very much. Please God, bring him home. Please bring my daddy home. That portrait is also on our website, capturedpodcast.com. Pat, Missy, and Francis's story would touch a lot of Washington politicians. One of those was Louisiana Congressman Edward Herbert. When I was in Washington, I met several very special congressmen, and, and he was one of them. And he told me when I talked to him, he says he saw the picture and he was very much taken by it and because he had daughters. And he said he was going to ask the Pentagon to please make a copy for him so he could have, have it hanging in his office. I found out from his daughter that years later, many years later, it had hung for 35 years in his office in Washington, D.C., behind his desk, the picture of Missy and Francis. I have news for you. This time there's a difference. This time we're going to win. Through the time that Nixon comes in and wins the 68 election, it was so horrible before. It's such a massive improvement post-68. And all the POWs and wives, or almost all of them, will, will agree with that, I think. Right when Nixon is inaugurated, so I believe it's the day after he's inaugurated, like something like two or 3,000 telegrams from POW wives who are part of this league movement deluge Nixon's desk. And they basically say, you better do something to help us bring these men home or we will not support you politically. And to Nixon's credit and that administration's credit, they respond to every single one of those telegrams and many of them are hand signed. So it's a sea change there with Nixon. Contrasted with LBJ, who would not even meet with these women, it's so night and day from what they were experiencing. It's as Sybil says in her diaries, she says, dark, dark days in the Johnson administration, bright, sunny days in the Nixon administration. This is one of the areas where I think he really shines. America has been able to preserve its pledge that we shall not betray our allies or abandon our men held prisoner or missing in action as we work for a full generation of peace. Richard Nixon was a Navy man himself. And like, well, I think World War II really affected him in terms of seeing all the destruction and the families torn apart. I mean, this was a cause I think he really emotionally cared about. Mr. Nixon really wasn't on my first radar. I had heard what he said, and after he had come out about the prisoners of war, I thought I, I respected him for doing that. And politically, it was very expedient to listen to these women. They are the silent majority voters. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. These military families, I mean, you better make friends with them or you're not going to do well with that whole demographic. They were such a potent media force and they had captured the attention of the country. You could not back out of that. You know, that was not going to work out well for anyone and it would have long lasting political repercussions. I think he wanted to do the right thing ethically, but he also knew, like all politicians know, these are part of my base. And I, if I don't keep them happy, I'm in really big trouble. I don't think there's any question. I mean, they were not going to let up 
until that was secured in, in the Paris Peace Agreements and that they brought home all the 591 POWs. This was a political marriage made in heaven, so it, it worked for everyone. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. You know, it takes a little time to get going, but not too long. He begins inviting the women to the White House for meetings. Henry Kissinger, who is the National Security Advisor, starts having bi-monthly meetings with the women. And then the National League office, which is set up by 1970, they have what I call the bat phone. They had a direct phone line to Dr. Kissinger's office. So in many of the documentations or documents, you will see that the wives were meeting with Kissinger and some of the other people in Congress. You know, at this point, the gloves were literally off and they're like, you are going to do what we need you to do. And fortunately, everyone's, I think, wants to get these guys out. The mission there was the same. So everybody did end up working together very well to do that. Coincidentally, one of the photos with President Nixon posing next to some of these wives happens to be with none other than Andrea Rander and Pat Burns standing next to each other more than 50 years ago. It's pretty special they both get to participate in this podcast today. You can find that photo on CapturedPodcast.com. So it seems like now we are making this impact. The word was out. It has spread. And people in Washington, D.C. were realizing that we are here. (laughs) They're not going anywhere. These wives mean business. And look what they've accomplished. They've met with the Vietnamese. The wives are doing it. They've made pathways. So a lot of things were happening, and we were responsible for them happening. There are approximately 1,300 U.S. servicemen believed held prisoner who have been heard from little, if at all, by their families. The anguish of those whose relatives are prisoners of war was apparent at the White House this morning as President Nixon met with 26 women whose husbands or sons are in communist prisoner camps in Vietnam. What I did is go to Washington, D.C., And I I remember my mom being gone a lot and missing her too. But we always knew she was, she was, I guess, fighting the good fight. We did know that. Nixon had them to the White House for a big press conference starting in 69 on where the women have made their own platform. I was invited to attend with a group of other ladies whose husbands are either missing or prisoners of war. So I went to Washington and, you know, and met Mrs. Nixon and she was charming. It it was an honor, in a sense, for me to be there. Uh, (laughs) I have to say, we still had a couple of questions going on there, but we, but we, we managed to get there and, you know, have this picture taken. And now it's been on on the cover of a, of, of a book and in many other places. He talked with them for 45 minutes and then accompanied five of them outside to meet newsmen. We met the press, which was a, a big thing in those days. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the very great honor to present in this room today five of the most courageous women I have had the privilege to meet in my life. While we all know that there is disagreement in this country, Uh, about the war in Vietnam, Uh, and while there is dissent about it on several points, that on this issue, the treatment of prisoners of war, that there can be and there should be no disagreement. What I have assured these very courageous women is this. First, that in reaching a settlement of the war, that an integral part of any settlement that is agreed to must be a settlement which is satisfactory on the prisoner issue. And second, that clearly apart from reaching an overall settlement of the war, that this, that this government will do everything that it possibly can to separate out the prisoner issue and have it handled as it should be as a separate issue on a humane basis. Press conference, as you can well imagine. My knees shook and... <laughs> 
the whole business. Five of the president's very special guests yeah. visited briefly with reporters. Soft-spoken and surprisingly well-adjusted to the realities of their misfortune, they talked of the many thoughts which usually occupy their private hours. As one of them had told the president, these are the things we live with late at night. We have men that have been held prisoners for three, four, and five years. And naturally, it is the concern and the anxiety of the families involved that these men cannot go on indefinitely under the extreme conditions which they are subject to day after day, both physically and mentally. And so it is our hope and the President's hope that the prisoner issue can be settled aside and apart from the general settlement of the war. My husband received his first letter after 21 months of captivity. His first letters were about four pages long and he even added a note of levity in his first couple of letters. Uh, you might be interested to know that in his last note, out of the six lines he was allowed to write, he only completed five of the lines, and it was obvious that he struggled to form some of the letters as he wrote. I can only conclude that he has been held in need of medical attention in solitary confinement, for the more than four years that he has been there. We send mail to men. We do not know whether they're alive or dead. The American people, I am sure, are unanimous in expressing their sympathy uh, to these women, to their children. The impact of these very poised young ladies was strongly felt by Washington's most unsentimental group of newsmen, especially Thank Mrs. You. Stockdale's Thank unexpected farewell. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the Nixon administration gave them a larger platform to speak from, a larger national, international podium in terms of the support that they gave them in the platform. I have said in the past, when all was said and done, after the guys were released and all the ceremonial things were, were done and over with, that he did represent kind of a savior to, to me personally because I had my husband home and he was released and he was safe and in my arms. It was January 27th of 73 is when that finally, you know, the Paris Peace Accords are finally signed. You know what? We were really just humbled by it. We felt that we had accomplished something, but it wasn't, we were not bragging about it all over the place. This was a mission, and it was, in a sense, like if, if the, the men in the military had a mission and they accomplished it, it was their job, and it was completed, and it was documented. But at the same time, we did what we thought we had to do, and there was no other way to go about it. And there were no wrong ways. We just did what we had to do. And uh, obviously, in the long run, it worked for us. I, I really had to do it. It's, it's just, I put one foot in front of the other and went on. It wasn't easy. It was hard, and I won't tell you about all the days, the uh, birthdays and the Christmases and all that went behind all this, but we had to do it, and we went to do it. With what the League of Wives did, getting bringing their husbands home eventually and all their lobbying and activism, I stupidly assumed that they were feminists. Oh, no, they were not feminists. Oh, heck no. I never call myself a feminist. But at first, that's a very negative label for them, so they, they don't choose to, to use that. Feminism in the seven, early 70s, late 60s, this is associated with communism and the left. So if you were a feminist, you were allied in, in a lot of people's minds with the captors of these men. You know, that had a very negative connotation. But what's interesting is over the years of lobbying, when they go from being conservative military housewives who play by the rules 
to people who burn the rule books and make their own rules and become very empowered, many of them over time do become feminists. Now, many don't. Many still don't like that label. But I would say whether you use that term or not, they definitely became empowered by these skills they learned. Things were a lot different in these households when many of the men returned home. The women were newly empowered. Although Dawn was back in Andrea's arms, for them, it was never the same. Pat, though, she would never have the chance to show Art the woman she had become. It came about a time when some letters apparently arrived in the United States from some various different groups giving the names of some people that were not known to be prisoners of war. And uh, my husband was one of them. So it was became a hidden fear that he was not one of the prisoners of war. There was a doubt. I was a little doubt. I'm not, I wasn't that naive. I was pretty naive, but not that naive. We always wanted our dad to come home. In 1973, um, the war ended. Well, the Paris Accords were signed and many of the men started coming home. What were you feeling at, at that time? Oh, that was an exciting time. Just, I felt just laughing and crying at the same time when we saw those fellows coming off the airplanes. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. And they were so brave and so, so beautiful to come home. Were you still looking for Art, hoping he'd step off that plane? That's, that's a little, that's a little daydreamer. <laughs> you did, you did. I did, in a way, yes. My daughter's saying this one. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until 1977, two years after the war ended, and 11 years after her husband was shot down, that the U.S. government informed Pat that Vietnam had returned the remains of 22 soldiers killed during the war. I got a call from the Pentagon. Some bodies were being returned, and my husband's body was one of them. And uh, uh, was, his body was returned. In every war, there are POWs and MIAs. And even now, there are still missing in action. And I, I still feel for all those families. You know, every now and again, you hear of some remains being returned and they manage to identify through DNA. And I always think of those families too, because it's, it's just, it just hangs on for a long, long time. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with, with his friends on a hill overlooking Washington, D.C. The war was finally over for now Colonel Art Mearns. A New York Times article from 1977 states, the war, the peace, and the uncertainty the Mearns family has had to live with hung over the ceremony like the clouds that filled yesterday's sky. Many who attended the ceremony were fellow flyers, and many had learned their flying from art during the years he taught at Luke Air Force Base. And then, in one of those moments of amazing coincidence, the sun broke through the clouds as the family was presented the flags from the casket. A smile came to Pat Mern's face, promising a new beginning. We will start again, she said. When there's no closure, it's, it's, there's always that empty spot. Sort of closed a period of my life, but opened another period of, of being this woman who, who had a life to live and to have my kids uh, grow up and live their lives. Pat, I know you never remarried, so that's that spark, um, that feeling that you had when you first met him, you didn't feel it again. No, when you have the very best, it's hard to 
have anything else. <laughs> and I had the very best. That concludes our two chapters covering the League of Wives. For more information on the League, its evolution, and its historical significance, we encourage you to pick up a copy of Heath's book, The League of Wives, The Untold Story of the Women Who Took on the U.S. Government to Bring Their Husbands Home. And her new book, A Biography of First Lady Pat Nixon, is coming 2024. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio, at CapturedPodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.